support for this episode comes from The Current Report. From data privacy to the future of TV, retail media, and beyond, the world of digital marketing is constantly in flux, so how can you keep up? Well, The Current Report is there for you. Each week, marketing leaders on the cutting edge give you the latest insight. If it's creating a buzz, they'll be talking about it. Subscribe to The Current Report wherever you get your podcasts. Support for this podcast comes from another podcast. The world's most valuable resource, it's actually data. Our data, based on our behaviors, is frequently being gathered, tracked, stored, and sold. So what does this mean for us? Join host Rafi Krikorian for season two of Technically Optimistic, where he'll take you on a deep dive into how our data is being used and what we can do about it. From social media feeds to foundational human rights, Krikorian leads us into territories both familiar and unexpected with openness and genuine curiosity. New episodes of Technically Optimistic drop every Wednesday. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to Decoder. I'm Neelai Patel, Editor-in-Chief of The Verge, and Decoder is my new podcast about big ideas and other problems. My guest today is Professor Daphne Keller, Director of the Program on Platform Regulation at Stanford Cyber Policy Center. And we're talking about a big problem, how to moderate what happens on the internet. This past week has seen the American government thrown into crisis after an unprecedented attack on the Capitol by a pro-Trump mob, all part of a messy attempt to overturn the election, egged on by Trump himself. As I'm recording this, the House of Representatives has introduced an article of impeachment against President Trump for incitement of insurrection. This is a turning point for the American experiment. And part of that turning point is the role of internet platform companies. In the aftermath of the attack on the Capitol, both Twitter and Facebook banned Trump, as did a host of smaller platforms. Platforms like Stripe stopped processing donations to his website. Reddit banned the Donald Trump subreddit. And Parler, a smaller competitor to Twitter, was effectively pushed off the internet as Apple and Google removed it from their app stores and Amazon kicked it off of Amazon Web Services. All three companies said Parler wasn't moderating enough. All of these actions were taken under dire circumstances, an attempted coup from a sitting president that left six people dead. But they are all part of a larger debate about content moderation across the internet that has been heating up for over a year now, a debate that is extremely complicated and much more sophisticated than any of the people yelling about free speech and the First Amendment really give credit to. Professor Keller has been on many sides of the content moderation system. Before coming to Stanford, she was associate general counsel at Google, where she was responsible for takedown requests relating to search results. She's also published work on the messy interaction between the law and companies' terms of service agreements when it comes to free expression online. So I really wanted her help understanding the frameworks that content moderation decisions get made in, what limits these companies, and what other models we might use. Two notes, you'll hear Professor Keller talk about CDA 230 a lot. The show, we talk about CDA 230 a lot. That is a reference to Section 230, the law that says platforms aren't liable for what their users publish. And pay attention to how quickly this conversation turns to competition. The size and scale of the big platform companies is a key part of the moderation debate in ways that surprise even me. And I have been talking about competition for a long time. Okay, Daphne Keller, Director of the Program on Platform Regulation at Stanford. Here we go. (laughs) 
Daphne Keller, you're the director of the program on platform regulation at Stanford Cyber Policy Center. Welcome to Decoder. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us. It uh, it feels like a, a monumental couple weeks for platform regulation, so it's good to talk to you about it. I just want to get a quick sense of your background, because you have teach this stuff at Stanford's law school, you have worked in the industry, you have led another group at Stanford on, on platform regulation. Give us a sense of just the sweep of how you've encountered content moderation, platform regulation, things like that. Sure. Well, you know, a lot of how I first encountered this was by being at Google and getting requests like, um, oh, this Turkish politician wants us to take down a news article from search results because it says that he's corrupt. And, you know, having to decide what to do with that, because we don't know if this politician in Turkey is corrupt or not. And so, you know, dealing with it in real life and seeing both what platforms can be compelled by law to take down, um, which is a pretty broad swath, including in the U.S., there are a fair number of things platforms legally have to take down. And then the separate question of, well, what should platforms use their discretion to take down if they want to go beyond the law or their users want them to go beyond the law and take down things that are really awful but but aren't illegal? So, you know, I, I dealt with that endlessly in practice. And then since 2015, I've been at Stanford and doing a lot of thinking and writing and, you know, testifying and public speaking about what the law should be and what the law can be. The platforms took big actions against the president over the last week. And they, they basically cited extraordinary circumstances, right? It was outside of their, their normal framework. And they said, he's inciting violence. Is that justified? I mean, that seems like there's the debate about content moderation and there's this dude is leading a coup and we're just not going to allow it the end. Is that basically the shape of it? I do think that's justified. You know, um, platforms rules for online content evolve all the time in response to new things happening. You know, people find a new way to be terrible to each other on the internet and then platforms have to update their policies. You know, maybe they didn't have protections for transgender people at one point and they realize they have to add it or maybe their rules don't cover the Tide Pod challenge and suddenly they have to adapt for that. Um, adapting because of real ongoing violence and threat to life in the nation's capital, that makes complete sense. And if that adaptation has to be fast and clumsy at the start, and then later on you go and you figure out how that affects the rest of your policies and you streamline them and make them consistent, that seems just fine to me. So you do think that the, the decisions, the actions taken against the president will filter into a larger framework of moderation policy over time? I think so. I mean, I mean, you know, as as the public, I think we want platforms to have a consistent set of rules. I think they want to have a consistent set of rules for PR reasons, but also for operational reasons. You know, it's really hard to enforce your rules if you have a special carve out for President Trump and a special, you know, Duterte carve out, you know, something that's really hard for the moderators to understand what the rule's going to be. Even if those decisions always end up on Mark Zuckerberg's desk? Well, I I think they only end up on his desk if they put strain on the existing rules. 
you know, if there's something where the existing rules say take this down, but there's some powerful reason to leave it up or vice versa. You know, so in this case, if there wasn't an existing rule or if the existing rule was ambiguous and it, you know, it needed a judgment call, it makes absolute sense that this kind of judgment call would go all the way to the top. Like, do you really want to just delegate it to, you know, somebody two years out of college to make this judgment call? Or do you want to actually have everybody look at it carefully? There is an existing body of content moderation uh, work that's being done by people and companies, some amount of uh, the governments around the world, some amount of industry bodies. Describe the existing structure of content moderation for people. How does it work right now? Well, if you're talking about a smaller company, it's likely you know a, a medium or a, a automatic and WordPress or Tumblr. It's likely that the content moderation is relatively artisanal, meaning there is a small team of college-educated Americans who think hard about the policies and look carefully at each takedown decision, and that. First of all, it can be bad for a global platform if it's nothing but Americans making the decisions. <laughs> um, but but it is possible to achieve a relatively high degree of consistency and care if you have that artisanal model. But once a platform crosses a certain size and a certain number of takedown requests, you get into the world of outsourced content moderation where you hire contractors, often in places like the Philippines, um, to, to do the work and try to craft rules that are so clear and have so many bright lines that it's possible to hand them off to globally distributed teams and, you know, hope to get consistent results out of them. Of course, as we all know, there are not actually consistent results. You know, as uh, Mike Masnick at TechDirt has written about at, at length, content moderation at scale is impossible to do right. There are always going to be a lot of errors and a, and a lot of inconsistencies consistencies. But those are the two main models, the sort of central artisanal model, the distributed model with huge teams. Um, and then, of course, both of those, but especially the, the big distributed models, are often supplemented by uh, technology. You know, for example, automated tools can detect duplicates of content that's been seen before and route them for faster review to see if they're being used in some new context like news reporting that makes them legal or just take them down without review and accept the possibility of error. So uh, automation plays a big role in the system also. So I, I would say 2020 was kind of a, a big inflection point in the conversation about content moderation. There was this endless amount of debate about Section 230, which is the law that says platforms aren't liable for what their, their users post. Trump insisted that it, it be repealed, which is a bad idea for a variety of reasons. Interestingly to me, Joe Biden's platform position is 230B repealed as well, which is unique, uh, I think, among Democrats. But that conversation really heated up. And then over the last week, you know, Trump incited a riot at the Capitol. He got himself banned from Twitter and Facebook. Another platform that we don't think about in the context of Twitter and Facebook, but like Stripe stopped processing payments from the Trump campaign website. And then sort of next to that, there is a competitor to Twitter called Parler, which had very lax content moderation rules. It got itself removed from both the Apple and Google app stores. Amazon AWS pulled the plug on its web hosting. Effectively, this the service was shut down by large tech companies that control distribution points. That's a lot of different things. It's a lot of different points in the tech stack. One of the things that I'm curious about is 
it feels like, okay, we had, we had a year of 230 debate and now a bunch of other people are showing up and saying from first principles, what should content moderation be? But there is actually a pretty sophisticated existing framework. There is a pretty sophisticated existing debate in industry, in academia. Can you just help me understand what the existing frameworks and debate look like? Yeah, I actually think there's a big gap between the debate in D.C. over the past year and the debate globally and and among experts and in academia. So D.C. has kind of been a circus, you know, with lawmakers just making things up and throwing spaghetti at the wall to see if it will stick. There are over 20 uh, legislative proposals to change CDA 230 last year, and a lot of them were just theater or had proposals that were highly impractical By contrast, globally, and especially in Europe, which is working on a huge legislative package on this right now, the Digital Services Act, there's a lot of attention where I think it should be placed, which is on just like the logistics of content moderation. How do you moderate that much speech at once? How do you define rules that even can be imposed on that much speech at once? And so the proposals we're seeing in Europe include things like getting courts involved in deciding what speech is illegal instead of putting that entirely in the hands of private companies, having processes so that when users have their speech taken down, they get notified and they have an opportunity to respond and, you know, say if they think they've been falsely accused, which happens a lot. And then if what we're talking about is the platform's own discretionary power to take things down, the European proposal and and some of the U.S. proposals also involves things like making sure platforms are really as clear as they can be about what their rules are, you know, telling users how the rules have been enforced, letting users appeal those, you know, discretionary takedown decisions, and, you know, just trying to make it so that users understand what they're getting, and ideally so that there is also enough competition that they can migrate somewhere else if they don't like the rules that are being imposed. That question about competition to me is, it, it feels like it it's at the heart of a lot of the the controversy without ever being at the forefront of it. Uh, and the way I would I would come at it is, well, okay, over the weekend, Apple and Google and AWS and Okta and a thousand Twilio, they all decided they weren't going to work with Parler anymore uh, because Parler didn't have the necessary content moderation standards. And I think Amazon uh, made public a letter they'd sent to Parler saying, we've, we've identified 98 instances where you should have moderated this harder and you're, you're out of our terms of service. We're not going to let incitement to violence happen through AWS's services. Well, if all of those companies can take Parler off the internet effectively, how can you have a rival company to Twitter with a different content moderation standard? Because it it feels like if, if you want to start the service that has more lax moderation, you will run into AWS saying, well, here's the floor. Yeah, it's a hugely important question. And, you know, this is why if you go deep enough in the Internet's technical stack, you know, down from consumer facing services like Facebook or Twitter and down to really essential infrastructure like your ISP or your mobile carrier access providers, 
we have net neutrality rules or we have in the past had net neutrality rules, <laughs> you know, saying those guys really do have to be common carriers. They do have to provide their services to everyone. They, they can't become discretionary um, sensors or choose what ideas can can flow on the Internet. And, you know, obviously we have a big debate in this country about net neutrality, even at that very bottom layer. But the examples that you just listed show that we need to have the same conversation about Anyone who might be seen as essential infrastructure, you know, if um, Cloudflare, for example, is protecting a service from hacking and when Cloudflare boots you off the service, you effectively can't be on the Internet anymore. We should talk about what the rules should be for Cloudflare. And, you know, in that case, their CEO, Matthew Prince, wrote a great op-ed saying, I shouldn't have this power. You know, we should be a democracy <laughs> and decide how this happens. And it shouldn't be that random tech CEOs become the arbiters of what speech can flow on the internet. So this is where we are talking about many, many different places in the stack. And I think I, I've always, you know, been a proponent of net neutrality that at the ISP level where it is very hard for most people to switch. There's a lot of pricing games. There's not a lot of competition. Okay. That makes a lot of sense for neutrality to exist. If the, the user-facing platform level, the very top of the stack, Twitter. I don't know that I think Twitter neutrality makes any sense. I, no, I, <laughs> it makes no sense. Google is a great example. Like, There's an idea that search neutrality is a conceptual thing that you can introduce to Google. What is the spectrum of, okay, we, we, we're pretty sure the pipe should be neutral. I'm not sure if search neutrality even is a possible idea. It sounds great to say. I like saying it. How does how do you think that spectrum where do you think the gradations of that spectrum lie? Well, I think you know the bottom line is that for a service like Twitter or Facebook, if they were neutral, you know, if, if they allowed every single thing to be posted or even every single legal thing, everything the first amendment allows, they would be cesspools. You know, they they would be free speech mosh pits. Um, and like real world mosh pits, like there are some white guys who would like it and everybody else would flee. Uh, and, and that's a problem, you know, both because they would become far less useful as actually sites, actual sites for civil discourse, but also because the advertisers would go away. You know, the platforms would stop making money. The audience would go away. You know, they, they would be effectively useless if, if they had to carry everything. So I think most people realistically do want them to kick out the Nazis. They do want them to weed out bullying and porn and pro-anorexia content and just this, the tide of garbage that, that would otherwise inundate the internet. I, I think the, the question that in the U.S. it's conservatives who have been raising this question, but globally people all across the, the political spectrum raise it. The question is, are the really big platforms at this point such de facto gatekeepers in controlling so much public discourse and, and so much of, of speakers' access to an audience that they ought to be subject to some other kind of rules. And I, I think, as you hinted at earlier, that's, that's kind of a competition question, right? There's a nexus of competition and speech questions that we are not wrangling with well yet. How do you think the current antitrust debate, there were a bunch of antitrust hearings last year, there was an antitrust report that was very focused on marketplaces, on Amazon using its, you know, its data to come up with products and then competing with 
the sellers on Amazon, on Apple and the App Store. The conservatives in this country did do a lot of work to try to hijack that antitrust conversation and make it about 230 and content moderation. They were mostly laughed out of the room. Do you see that expanding? Do you, do you see us getting to a place where we're saying, okay, yep, there's a bunch of problems with Apple's 30% cut on the App Store, but also Apple is a massive gatekeeper to social media platforms as evidenced by their takedown of Parler. And Apple needs, we need to know what Apple's standards for content moderation are as expressed to the apps on its platform. I do see that expanding, but I think it can only expand in a way that is really hard, like that will take a lot of hard work. You know, historically, the area of U.S. law that sits at this nexus of competition and speech is telecoms law and communications law. You know, it's the rules that the FCC provides uh, for broadcast and for cable. And the internet is very different from broadcast and cable. We can't just export those laws, but we do have a long history of thinking about, you know, what should the rules be when there are a small number of gatekeepers for the channel that ordinary people rely on for communication. You know, so I, I wouldn't be too surprised if at some point, several years out, not this year, Congress tries to do something serious modeled on communications law. And then if that happened, we would have massive litigation that I think would reach the Supreme Court uh, about whether they're allowed to do that. And, and it's a really tough question because the Internet is different. And, you know, the last time the Supreme Court seriously took a look at this question, they completely rejected the idea of using communications law. This is in the Reno case in 2000, the sort of seminal U.S. First Amendment case um, for the Internet. They totally rejected the idea of using a communications law framework. But a lot of people would argue that things have changed. And certainly if we look at Europe, you know, they are using literally broadcast law to regulate companies like YouTube now. So to be clear, I'm not advocating for this, but I do think it's a direction we should expect the law to move in. Every time I uh, talk to a law professor, I end up feeling like a first-year law student. And now I have to recite the facts of the Reno case and not get them wrong. <laughs> so the Reno case was... The Communications Decency Act in the 90s was passed. The ACLU published a document to get standing to sue the government and say the Communications Decency Act is illegal. The Supreme Court took it up and said, OK, we cannot apply the frameworks we use to regulate broadcast television to the Internet at large and say it's illegal to have porn on the Internet. And all that remains of the CDA, as far as I know, is 230, the law that says platforms aren't liable for what the user's public. Very good. You get an A. That's better than I ever did in law school. <laughs> I mean, it, it is a really weird history, you know, that a, a single act of Congress, well, it was part of the, the 1996 telecoms package, but a, a single piece of that, the Communications Decency Act, com, it contained both these pro-censorship rules saying platforms have to take down indecent speech, or it it wasn't platforms at the time, but people on the internet. And that's what the Supreme Court struck down. And they said quite ringingly, you know, free expression is protected on the internet. There are no special limits. This is not like broadcast where in prime time you can't use, you know, profanity. Uh, this is a crucial forum for public discussion. Uh, so most of that law got struck down. And then what's left is CDA 230. And CDA 230, I think, is is widely misunderstood um, as just a law that lets platforms leave user speech up, 
you know, just a law that has a pro-free expression intent, which is certainly part of it, but it also has a clear intent, and, you know, Congress said this, it's not a question, clear intent to let platforms go out and moderate and take down not just illegal stuff, but, you know, the kind of lawful but awful speech we were talking about before, the the bullying, the legal hate speech, the barely legal harassment. CDA 230 is crafted to let platforms adopt a diversity of different speech rules and let users choose which speech rules they, they want to live under, including, you know, relatively aggressive moderation, um, as as we see on some platforms. Yeah, it's interesting is when you when you talk to Senator Wyden and Senator Coons, who they were the bipartisan duo that crafted 230. They anticipated a ton of competition. That's what they wanted. And that comes back all the way to your point of we, there needs to be some reckoning with the lack of competition and its effect on speech. Because the legal framework we're operating under was built with an expectation of competition. And they also expected, and the Reno court expected, for there to be tools for end users you know, you and me to really exercise control over what content we're seeing, you know, ways that we could put, as they saw it then, like settings in our browsers so that we're the ones setting the rules for the speech that we see. And and we've kind of gotten away from that. We, you know, we've moved to a world where the, the nexus, the locus of control sits with moderators at Facebook or Twitter. And I think a lot of people are saying, well, wait, what about that 90s idea that the control should sit with the end user, you know, that we should have dials and knobs to adjust what it is that we want to see or ways that we can opt into different content moderation rules from different sources. So and this is actually something that Jack Dorsey at Twitter talked about in his congressional testimony the last two times he testified is the idea of introducing some competition in the providers of moderation so that users can choose what rules they want to live under. Yeah. One of the things I think about all the time is YouTube kids. And if you just say all the platform companies have to abide by the First Amendment and the limitations of the First Amendment that the government has to abide by, I don't know that YouTube kids could exist because it effectively filters out a whole bunch of YouTube that they would not be allowed to filter out in that way. And that to me is I think the reality on the ground of what people expect from the service providers, what they're legally able to do, and then our discomfort with their power, it doesn't seem to be, I would say there's no framework for a regular person to understand all of those interactions. So how would you describe the broad framework that exists outside of the the competition concern, right? There's the First Amendment, there's some stuff that's just like outwardly illegal, and then there's the platforms themselves. Um, I think it might be easier to start with what the, the platforms have to do. So platforms are subject to federal criminal law, the same as anyone else. There's no special immunity under CDA 230 or anything else for that. So for things like child sexual abuse material, uh, support of terrorism, you know, anything that's covered by federal criminal law, they may have to take things down. And they do take things, particularly for child sexual abuse material. There's, you know, huge systems in place to to get that off of platforms. Another big chunk is copyright. For copyright, there's a, you know, detailed notice and takedown process for removal. And then the third big chunk is the kind of speech covered by CDA 230. So things like defamation, um, and and for those platforms are immunized if they leave it up, but they are also encouraged and um, protected by the law if if they choose to take things down. 
That's where a lot of the focus has been recently on the question of what can they choose to take down. And as I'm sure you know, there have been a lot of lawsuits, some of them quite high profile, many from political conservatives saying, hey, platform, you have to reinstate my speech. You have to carry my videos or, or my lectures or whatever. And the platforms always win those. And they win them sometimes based on CDA 230. Uh, which gives them a relatively quick and easy win. But they also win them based on their own First Amendment rights to set editorial policy. And that's really important because it tells us what Congress does and doesn't have leeway to change. Like they can't change the platform's First Amendment rights. And so even if Josh Hawley or someone, you know, drafts a bill that says platforms have to carry particular speech or have to follow a particular uh, set of moderation rules, that is not consistent with the First Amendment. That's not something that is within Congress's reach. So that brings me back to the, the, the broadcast framework. My understanding of it, which is a little fuzzy, because for obvious reasons, the Verge does not spend a lot of time in broadcast regulation, is that the reason that, that Congress is able to reach sort of beyond the power of the First Amendment and regulate broadcast networks is because broadcast networks make use of wireless spectrum, which is a scarce resource owned by the public. And they can step through it and say, okay, we're managing the use of the public airwaves for the greatest common good. And they find other ways to, to justify those decisions beyond that. But there's a very basic foundation of broadcast networks operate on the public's radio spectrum. So the government has an interest in making regulation there. Is there an analog to the internet? Well, I think we will see a debate about that. But what uh, the Supreme Court said in ACLU v. Reno and what people have been assuming for a very long time is you, you can't extend that reasoning for broadcast regulation to the internet because the foundation of the broadcast regulation is spectrum scarcity. There's not enough of it to go around and that justifies the government coming in and allocating it, including allocating some for public use. And that justifies the government being able to say, hey, some speech is legal, but you can't say it on broadcast because it will be heard by children or it will offend people. You know, that's why we have rules against profanity during primetime, things like that. It also can justify the government coming in and saying, hey, you have to carry certain speech. You know, in order to ensure that all viewpoints are heard, we are going to compel you to carry certain things. Both of those things there are great limits on what the government can do, but they can at least do it sometimes, we know, in broadcast because of the special attributes of broadcast. But the internet, at least at the platform level, you know, at the level of people speaking on websites, doesn't have that kind of scarcity. You know, you can always put up one more website or you can always, you know, build another platform to get your speech heard. And, and so the scarcity that, that's the justification for laws in broadcast doesn't extend to the internet. Now, you can push back on that. There are people who push back saying, well, now we have a scarcity of attention. And, you know, Facebook and Twitter and YouTube are the gatekeepers controlling access to that scarce resource. So, you know, you'll see arguments building on that more from the left. You can also say, well, maybe there's no scarcity at the edge of the network. But as we were discussing before, there is scarcity or gatekeepers in the large-scale hosting space like Amazon Web Services or in, you know, ISPs, other infrastructure providers deeper in the network. 
that's fascinating to me because, you know, we we have been talking about competition from the beginning, almost of this conversation. And there isn't competition for Twitter either. Right. If you're going to make the argument that the government has an interest in regulating AWS because it is a large scale gatekeeper with minimal competition or that competition is Google Cloud and Microsoft Azure and they all have the same content moderation policies anyway. So you can't even move from one to the other. Like you'll you'll just run into the same problem. Well, doesn't that same argument extend to Facebook and Twitter and YouTube? There isn't another video hosting provider at the scale of YouTube that exists in the world. Can't you just say, well, okay, there's only YouTube. We can't figure out a competition policy that forces somebody else to create a YouTube. So we're just going to say at this scale, these are your rules. I mean, I think you know, there is another YouTube. There's Daily Motion. There used to be other YouTubes like <laughs> Vio and Vimeo. I guess Vimeo is still there, but you know, some of them got sued out of existence on copyright claims that ultimately failed. <laughs> you know, <laughs> they went bankrupt despite being right, defending against copyright claims. So, you know, I think there is a competition problem, but I don't think it's literally correct to say there's nowhere to go if you get kicked off of YouTube. There are places to go. They just don't have audiences that are as big. Or, you know, if you got kicked off of Twitter, you could go to Parler until recently. You know, I, I'm not saying there's no argument to be made. There absolutely is. And this question about attention scarcity is important and, and so forth. But but. It's not like you literally disappear from the internet if you can't be on YouTube or you can't be on Twitter. There are alternatives. Whereas if you are eliminated by, you know, DNS providers in your country or you're eliminated by Cloudflare and you're vulnerable to hacking, it might be you literally are not on the internet anymore. And that's much more consequential. We're going to take a break. And when we come back, I want to ask you about copyright law, because it seems to solve some of these problems. Support for Decoder comes from Mint Mobile. Imagine you're at a very fancy, expensive restaurant. And as you're browsing the menu, wondering how you'll afford anything on it, you notice the filet mignon is a mere $10. At first you think jackpot, but then you immediately think, wait, what's the catch? Now what do suspiciously cheap steaks have to do with your cell phone bill? Well, we're used to seeing quote unquote great deals from overpriced wireless providers and also thinking, what's the catch? But with Mint Mobile, there is no catch. For a limited time, their wireless plans are just $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. You can get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month. Go to mintmobile.com slash decoder. That's mintmobile.com slash decoder. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash decoder. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on an unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Okay, we're back. You, you brought up copyright law, which is, I joked before we started recording that 
one of my goals for this episode was to make people understand the term intermediary liability. Good luck. <laughs> you got to set high goals for yourself. So when we talk <laughs> about 230 and speech regulation and content moderation, what we're talking about is the liability of the inter- inter- intermediary provider. There's the person hitting tweet, there's a the person getting the tweet, and there's Twitter in the middle. They're the intermediary. The other massive intermediary liability framework that exists is in copyright law, where you're the person uploading the music video to YouTube, there's the person watching it, then there's a very important third party, which is a record label or an artist, and then there's YouTube. And because that third party has such an intense interest, right, particularly in, the, in Hollywood, in the music industry, copyright law is a pretty well-developed intermediary liability framework. There's regular check-ins on exemptions to the DMCA, there is, there's another set of hearings right now on modernizing copyright law. There is, there's just an, an intense amount of work that seems to constantly be happening in copyright space. Why doesn't that work happen in the 230 sort of speech area? Is it because the, there isn't that well-moneyed third-party interest of record labels and artists? So I think you're absolutely right to point to copyright law. And so much of what we're seeing now already happened in copyright law. You know, the copyright lawyers have been pointing out these issues for years. In particular, there's an um, academic named Anne-Marie Bridie who wrote a great piece on payment processors cutting people off uh, in the copyright context, which is completely relevant now. Uh, <laughs> and also wrote a great piece about the, the difference between uh the obligations, what we want from edge providers and what we want from infrastructure providers. I think in the U.S., the copyright discussion is well-developed because we started from the beginning with the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, the DMCA, which sets out a detailed process for notice and takedown and has ideas like the user who's being silenced should be notified and have an opportunity to object And if the accusation that caused them to be silenced was sent in bad faith, which happens a lot, there's a great deal of abuse by notifiers in these systems, the person doing that can be penalized. So that's just built into the copyright discussion and has been for a long time. The people who come to this just from CDA 230 and don't have copyright experience tend to propose rules like, well, platforms should take things down if they know about it, or they should be reasonable, or you know, standards that leave platforms completely unsure what to do when they receive an accusation, like the one I mentioned, the Turkish politician saying that news coverage was defaming him. So th- there's a ton that the 230 discussion should learn from copyright. And, and there's a very clear contrast between the discussion here and the discussion in Europe. You know, d- Europe has had effectively notice and takedown all along for copyright and defamation and invasions of privacy and hate speech that's illegal there. Um, And so their political discussion is talking about things like, you know, protections for speech and counter notice and penalties for bad faith accusations for all of those things and, and has been all along. The Digital Services Act package, which was introduced in December, which is a huge overhaul of EU law, is absolutely focused on those things. I can't help but feel like we are we're just talking about ways to overcome the First Amendment. Right. What we want is for Congress to do something and they are hamstrung. Maybe hamstrung is the wrong word, but they are limited in what they can do by the existence of the First Amendment, which grants an enormous amount of leeway to the platforms, which in this country we cherish, 
and which basically says the government can't do these things unless we find some other rationale, right? That is not really the issue for copyright. So you build an entire infrastructure of notice and takedown for copyright, and there are the people who say that, you know, are on the margin, our fair use determinations have some First Amendment implications, but as a whole, it's, you know, it's fine. And so copyright law ends up stepping, this is uh, Sarah Jong's argument uh, that she's published on The Verge before, that copyright law ends up stepping in as the enforcement mechanism because it's the only one we can trust because it's developed. And we don't spend a lot of time talking about, well, what we want is for the government, the democratically elected government to make speech regulations because we don't really want Jack Dorsey and Mark Zuckerberg to do it, but the government cannot. What is the best argument to get past it? I think hamstrung is is a fair word for it. You know, we're in a situation where most people would like platforms to take down speech that is legal, you know, to take down hate speech and extreme harassment that's barely legal and, you know, all of this lawful but awful content that, that we talked about earlier. Um, and certainly on the Democratic side of the aisle, that seems to be what most members of Congress want. I think most Republicans do too. You know, like the Christchurch shooting video was a horrible piece of content, but it's legal to share in many cases. And yet there was just consensus, it appeared to me, that platforms should, as a moral matter, take it down. But if we want them to take down speech that is First Amendment protected, we cannot use the law to dictate what they take down and how they take it down. The Constitution forbids that. And so if we want them to do it anyway, then we are in a world of asking private, unaccountable power to decide what speech disappears. That, like, that's where we are. That's, that's the trap that we're in. And some people, a lot of people in academia and civil society try to sort of uh, get out of that trap by saying, well, let, let's make the private power more accountable. You know, let's have the Facebook oversight board look at 30 cases a year or whatever they're going to look at. You know, let's have more transparency. And those things are all good, but they're very weak you know, <laughs> compared to the kind of due process and accountability that we expect from actual laws. So, you know, we're kind of, we're, we're in a weird situation having huge public demand for platforms to take action and not having Congress be able to define in a democratically accountable way and a way with constitutional checks and balances what that action should be. That leaves us in a situation where we should worry about platform power, and people do, but we should also worry a lot about who has leverage over platforms. You know, will they effectively take down what a foreign government wants them to take down, which definitely happens uh, in the case of European demands and probably happens in many cases based on Chinese demands, you know, in ways that are not necessarily visible to us. I'm not saying that about the major platforms. You know, are they just doing what advertisers want? And, you know, is that how we want things to work? Do, do we want advertisers to ultimately be the ones driving online speech policy because they're the ones with leverage over platforms. Um, so there, there's a deep question about whose power and whose speech preferences we're going to get in this world where we turn to platforms to set the rules. Do the advertisers have that power? I feel like we've lived through however many YouTube adpocalypses. We lived through the massive Sleeping Giants color of change pressure campaign on Facebook. The changes at best were minimal and the advertisers came right back. I think 
they do have that power. I mean, I, I think the YouTube adpocalypse was real. That you know, this is when advertisers said, "If YouTube, if you don't change your policy on violent extremist speech, we're going to pull our accounts and you'll lose money." And YouTube changed its policies pretty much overnight in a way that was pretty clumsy because it is hard to get policy in this space right. And then a whole lot of you know independent filmmakers who were not <laughs> violent extremists l- lost their revenue. And, you know, now there's this effort, GARM is the acronym, it's an ads industry effort to, uh, in a more systemic way, set policies for platforms or uh, that determine which kinds of content can get advertising revenue. Um, I think at the end of the day, the, the I was going to say the greatest source of power over platforms is the advertisers, you know, because uh, they control the purse strings. But the, the other big source of power is countries that can threaten to levy huge fines or cut off access to lucrative markets. So, you know, governments and advertisers are, <laughs> are my big two as sources of power over platforms, speech policies. Thus is the story of America. <laughs> so there's a, you know, sort of collectivized advertising industry approach to regulating the industry. But there are content moderation policy boards, groups of academics. There is the Facebook Oversight Board. There was a group, there was a, a convention, Santa Clara, that proposed something called the the Santa Clara Principles for, for Moderation around transparency and stuff. Why hasn't that stuff taken hold, right, in the way that, uh, like, the IAB, the uh, Internet Advertiser Board, literally is like, here are the standard sizes for banner ads, and this is what we're doing, and the whole industry works this way. Why hasn't that taken root on the content moderation side? Well, I think some of it is gradually taking hold. For example, the Santa Clara Principles, which is a civil society effort, their ask is for notice, numbers, and appeals. So they want users to get notice when their content has been taken down. They want public transparency about the number of things taken down and under which policies and, you know, how... how many were appealed. Uh, And then the third demand is appeals for users to be able to challenge a takedown and get it reviewed by, you know, somebody other than the person who initially took it down. If you look at what big platforms like, you know, Facebook and Twitter and YouTube have been doing, they are incrementally getting better on all of those fronts. They're far from perfect. There's plenty more to ask for. And I think smaller platforms are also incrementally getting better. So I think there is motion in in response to those things. Um, but, But I also think, you know, bigger picture, looking at other pressures on them for content moderation, if the ask is for process and transparency, like in the Santa Clara principles, then there's a clear path forward to getting better. If the ask is set the right content policies, take down the bad stuff and leave up the good stuff, there's no public consensus on what stuff is bad and what stuff is good. Um, and so there's no way to measure, you know, when they've arrived at the right thing, because a huge chunk of the population will always disagree with whatever it is that they arrive at. One of the things I always think about in the context of, okay, we've established a process, it's transparent, now we're going to do the work, is, well, there are actual human beings that have to do the work. And, you know, at The Verge, we've covered extensively the impact that the work has on the actual human beings. It gives them PTSD that causes other mental health issues. They're not paid enough. Where in the world of content moderation debate do the those workers actually lie? Are they considered? Are they because it, it basically we're saying we want you to moderate better, 
But another way of saying that is we want you to give more people PTSD. Like, how do you how do you balance that harm? Yeah. So occasionally they are considered in Germany's Netz DG law, for example, uh, part of the requirement is disclosure about the working conditions and the like psychological support services available to people doing content moderation. In the U.S., I think lawmakers are pretty blind to that issue. You know, I, I think there are so many things we need to get more sophisticated about, and, and that's absolutely one of them. The, there's an organization, and I'm an advisor to them, um, the, I should disclose, the Trust and Safety Professionals Association, TSPA, that's been around for maybe a year now, that has some great senior people who worked in content moderation for years running it. And their goal, you know, is precisely this, is, is to be a resource for the people doing the work to help identify, you know, professional standards um, about what kind of support they should get, you, what the promotion criteria should look like, you know, what, what is the expertise you need to do this work. So the, there's more and more attention to it. And, and I think a growing body of resources but not nearly enough understanding uh, on Capitol Hill. We're going to take another break. And when we come back, I want to talk about what happens if we just get rid of Section 230. Hey, it's Tom Warren, senior editor at The Verge here. Microsoft is in an era-defining moment. It's betting on AI as the future of work. Its Xbox business is going through transformational changes and the Mac versus PC war is about to be back on. So I'm launching a newsletter called Notepad. It will be your inside guide to all those changes and beyond. From details on the next Xbox to that one time every Microsoft employee named Michael appeared on a mysterious email list. Whatever is happening at Microsoft, you'll be able to read about it first in Notepad every Thursday. Go subscribe now at theverge.com forward slash notepad. All right, we're back with Decoder. So let me offer you sort of my my nuclear shower thought, which is, well, okay, the right wants to get rid of 230 out of what appears to be pure vengeance. Joe Biden says he wants to repeal 230. What if you just got rid of 230 and you let a bunch of courts sort of piecemeal their way up to what platforms are and are not liable for because they, the platforms would all immediately get sued. There'd be a hundred lawsuits, a thousand lawsuits. And some courts would say, well, the platform isn't liable for this speech and the platform is liable for that speech. And you would just stumble your way towards something like the fair use regime in copyright law, where every case is supposed to be adjudicated case by case, but we have developed some overarching standards that people tend to live by. Why not get rid of it and just let the courts do it? So I think the first thing that would happen in that scenario is that a bunch of small platforms would just shut down because they cannot afford that kind of litigation. And I'm thinking here of like your preschool's blog where parents <laughs> can post comments, a local newspaper that has comment sections, a retailer that lets users post reviews of sweaters or you know, hardware, uh, you know, there's just this broad swath of companies or private or, you know, they don't necessarily have to be for profit, but entities that are very small that depend on 230 or whose primary business is something else. And they would cut off the, the user speech portion of what they do. Um, a second thing that would happen is that among small companies, whoever survives would 
be very much incentivized to just take things down to avoid that lawsuit. So the false accusation problem that I mentioned before, where you get things like the government of Ecuador using bogus copyright claims to take down police brutality videos and critical journalism, or you get things like scientists whose work has been disproven taking down the online evidence of that, or competitors trying to knock their competition out of Google web search so that they get more business. Like All these false accusations will succeed much, much more. You'll have a problem the Supreme Court has called the heckler's veto problem. So I think both of those things happen right off the bat. And then in terms of, you know, well, won't we litigate and get to some clarity? I think the big platforms that can afford to litigate a bunch of cases and, you know, have a long-term interest in getting to an outcome will litigate. So then we'll know what they're supposed to do. You know, we'll we'll know what a company with 30,000 moderators is supposed to do. But in terms of setting precedent that anyone smaller could possibly comply with or possibly use to know kind of from in the first instance what they're supposed to do, I I don't think we will get to something useful. And, And I think there's a dangerous misunderstanding in Congress um, about the idea that we will get to clarity somehow relatively quickly and relatively cheaply if CDA 230 goes away. And I think that's fed in part by people thinking that the First Amendment will require an outcome so similar to CDA 230 that we'll just quickly arrive at something like the status quo today. Uh, And while I think the First Amendment does put limits on what liability we can put on platforms, like very meaningful limits. Uh, that is not some simple answer that we will arrive at quickly. You mentioned uh, companies with 30,000 moderators. This dovetails once again into the competition concern, which is it all does. To, ru- to run a, co- a meaningful competitor to Facebook, you need to run a trust and safety and policy and a moderation team at Facebook scale. Mark Zuckerberg is very fond of saying, more people work in trust and safety at Facebook than work on Instagram. Is that, I think your colleague Alex Damos has said, eventually there's going to be an ecosystem of firms providing trust and safety services, right? You're going to be able to outsource it just like you can outsource uh, payment systems or whatever. Have you seen that developing? Is that is that a necessary precondition to competition? It's a really good question. And I actually think what has happened is we saw that develop and then contract a little bit. There are some firms that, you know, went into this as kind of maybe as a sideline to consulting or things like that, and then discovered it, it's hard. <laughs> um, and not all of them are necessarily doing it anymore. I mean, I think as a kind of game theory, economic prediction, it makes sense that that those outsourced vendors should emerge. But there are a lot of problems that come with that. You know, one is the sort of labor and workplace conditions issues that you were flagging before, especially for people who are working in, you know, Bangalore or or Manila doing this work. Um, another is it's harder for platforms to define and enforce really consistent policies when when they're being enforced by kind of scattered teams all over the globe with different understandings of, you know, what counts as overly sexual content, for example. And I worry, you know, if we did get to this world of lots of outsourced moderation, I I worry about that being a force for homogeneity. You know, it's much easier to hire a vendor to do your content moderation if you just 
go ahead and use the same rules Facebook does. <laughs> <You know? laughs> um, and, and I would much rather have an internet with a great diversity of different platforms with different speech policies for different functions so that, you know, if I want raunchy speech, I can go to raunchyspeech.com and, you know, get that set of rules. And if I want kid appropriate speech, I go somewhere else. And if I want speech that's just for dog lovers and you can't talk about cats, you know, I go somewhere else. Having that diversity is important and it's hard to outsource and maintain that kind of diversity. Is it necessary for people to do the work? I mean, we uh, Facebook itself talks about algorithmic moderation a lot. There is an awful lot of algorithmic copyright moderation in the world, content ID at YouTube. There's also just a lot of false positives. There's a lot of gray area. Is the, the sort of let the computer do it side of the equation getting meaningfully better in a way that it can actually scale? It is getting you know, better than it was as a technical matter, it still has massive problems. You know, when the big platforms had to send a lot of their content moderators home because of COVID and resort to using automated filters more, they were thankfully pretty public about it. And also fairly public about saying, hey, a lot more mistakes happened as a consequence. You know, the automation does not do as good a job as as the humans do. And people like um, activists on the ground in Tunisia who had their Facebook accounts cut off um, definitely think that they were victims of this kind of, of automated moderation mistake. Nonetheless, you know, we see um, in the new European new-ish European copyright directive, and also in their very frightening terrorist content regulation, um, which just cleared a big legislative hurdle this week, um, both of those laws have an idea that platforms are going to use automation to identify which speech is legal and which speech is illegal. And there is definitely no automation that can do that. You know, those laws garnered letters from UN human rights officials, from civil society organizations, from coalitions of retired judges, just all kinds of people saying, hold the presses. You can't take the kind of legal decision that we rely on courts to do with respect for, you know, constitutional rights or fundamental rights, you can't take those decisions and assign them to a machine because the machines can't tell the difference between a video used in ISIS recruitment and the same video used in news reporting or counter speech or academic research. Um, And that's a huge loss if we just farm it out to the machines. So we are at a pretty massive inflection point, I think, in the content moderation debate. How do you think it goes forward under a Biden administration? It's such a good question. (laughs) Everybody (laughs) wants to know. And and this was already an object of great speculation before the um, insurrection and the invasion of the Capitol building last week. And so how that changes things is also a very big question. You know, I, I am hoping that we will see more careful and responsible proposals from Democrats, things that are more like the PACT Act, which came from uh, a bipartisan act from Senators Schatz and Thune, that do use courts and that do have processes and that, you know, don't just assign platforms responsibility for getting things right under vague standards like reasonableness and under the threat of getting in lots of trouble if they don't meet these unclear standards. 
you know, I hope we don't have that. I hope we do have real clarity about what platforms are and are not supposed to do to the extent that we have changes at all. I, I think there are a lot of difficult legal questions that we should never ask platforms to decide, like whether a news report about a politician is defamation. I want a court on that. I do not want uh, Facebook's trust and safety team to have to decide things like that. What do you think the next, I mean, we're in a very volatile time in America right now. What do you think the next thing people should look for is? Honestly, I would hope that it involves sitting down and thinking about what is a competition question and what are the legal competition tools to respond? What's a privacy question and what are the legal privacy tools like, say, federal privacy legislation <laughs> that might respond to that? And and what is a question about speech and CDA 230? Because recently we've seen, you know, CDA 230 has all this name recognition and interest. And so people propose laws to change it in order to solve problems that are really about privacy, you know, or really about competition. And, and so I hope we'll see more care about that. I'm going to declare myself an optimist on that, even though the events of the last year may or may not support optimism. Well, Professor Keller, thank you so much for taking the time. I know it was short notice. This was uh, an illuminating conversation. Thank you for having me. My thanks again to Professor Daphne Keller for taking the time to be on Decoder today. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. As always, I'd love to hear what you think of the show. I'm at Reckless on Twitter. You can email us at decoderattheverge.com. We love your feedback. If you like the show, please share it with your friends. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Decoder is a production of The Verge and part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. It is produced by Sophie Erickson. Our audio engineer is Andrew Marino. Our music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Stay tuned for another episode of Decoder later this week. We'll see you then.